Welcome to the Christ Community Church Podcast. This teaching was recorded live during our weekend service in St. Charles, Illinois. We invite you to join us in person any weekend in St. Charles, DeKalb, Aurora, or Streamwood. Learn more at ccclife.org. And now, enjoy the message. Uh, Well, some of you at this point are wondering, who is this guy? And I think that's a valid question. It shows you have been paying attention over the last few weeks because I am indeed a new face to this part of the service. Uh, My name is Josh Hyde. I serve here as our high school and our college pastor. And one of the things that I have learned about preaching is it is important to establish rapport with your audience so they can kind of feel like they connect with you in some form or fashion. I feel like an easy way to establish rapport is to show off a picture of your family, especially if they're adorable. And so here you go. This is my family. Uh, This is my wife, Mackenzie. She is clearly way out of my league. She's amazing, but please don't tell her she's out of my league. I like her. I want to keep her around, right? The other two little men in the photo there are my boys, Titus, who is three, and Roman, who is one. These are three of my favorite people on earth. Another easy way to establish rapport with folks is to share like a a top five favorite things list in hopes that we can find some common things that we love. And so other than the three people in this photo and Jesus, here are some of my favorite things. I love student ministry. And serving here at Christ Community Church on our student team is a joy for me just about every single day. I am a huge fan of 49er football, and no, I am not over the Super Bowl loss yet, and so if you see me, be aware, it's a raw wound. I love bass fishing. It's one of my hobbies in this season of life. I really enjoy snacking on popcorn, and I am a big fan of movies. My favorite movie of all time, The Lord of the Rings Trilogy. Yes, all of them, all together. I once watched the extended editions of each of these films back to back to back with my siblings. Uh, And at about 12 and a half hours in, I kind of felt like Jell-O. I'm pretty sure the human body is not made for that sort of cinematic consumption, but you should totally try it at least once. Now, the endeavor felt significant enough. I think I'm going to go out and buy one of those mileage stickers that people get when they run marathons and slap it on my car. But it's going to say 12 and a half in honor of the number of hours of my movie marathon. I feel like it kind of feels the same, right? Don't at me, all you runners out there. Hey, if you have not had the joy of watching these films yet, let me give you a quick run-through that would make Peter Jackson super disappointed. There's this group of friends, they call themselves the Fellowship of the Ring, and they set out on this perilous journey to destroy an evil villain, all of his forces, and this ring of power that basically makes him unstoppable. They start this journey together, but eventually they're broken up into smaller groups who all have these kind of mini quests that contribute to the greater greater overall mission. At one point, three of them are off saving a city from certain doom. Two hobbits have teamed up with a talking tree to stop this evil wizard and all of his goons. Meanwhile, the good wizard dies, but then comes back to life as a more powerful version of his former self. And our main character, Frodo, is being attacked by a giant spider, while his best friend, Sam, who Frodo has just banished from the quest, is now racing back to tell Frodo that he is being tricked by the evil creature Gollum, who's supposed to be leading them to a volcano where they're going to destroy this ring of power. Confused yet? Yeah, it's a lot to take in. I get it. I get it. At various points in in these movies, we have as many as five to seven stories all unfolding at once, and it leaves us wondering if, when, how, these stories will be drawn together and if it will match the way we want it to be. You know, trying to figure out how all of these open-ended storylines are going to be merged and wrapped up can be some of the best parts of any movie. These are the parts that keep us on the edge of our seats, chowing down on popcorn and eating raisinets, except no one likes raisinets. And you know what else? You know when these types of open-ended storylines are not quite as fun? 
when it's your life that feels like an open-ended story. It's a whole different experience when our lives feel like seven disconnected stories that are all unfolding and we are not in control of how they are unfolding. When you feel like all you can do is wait for the day, long for the day when you have clarity, control, maybe a sense of calm, you are longing for all of those loose ends to be drawn together. You know, many of us are reeling in this reality right now. For the most part, we have no idea what the next month will hold for us. Many adults are wondering if they're going to have a job because either they've lost one already or they understand the risk they have of losing the one they've got. Students in middle school, high school, and college are unsure, am I going to be back in school with my friends this fall or am I going to be going through another semester of school completely online? Moms and dads are scrambling to find healthy and reliable childcare and also Many are going to have to figure out how to do online schooling for their kids. I mean, how many parents are dreading learning the new version of math our kids have to learn these days? Meanwhile, we're told things like, we're making progress on a vaccine for COVID, or a second round of stimulus checks are on their way. Schools tell us, we're working on plans and we'll get them to you soon, or my personal favorite, we're going to be back to normal eventually. You know, in the midst of all of this uncertainty and all of these loose ends, there is possibly some hope for these things, maybe. You know, this is likely how the nation of Israel felt when we came to the point of the story that we're going to explore today. I want to call back the chart that Pastor Clayton gave us last week, uh, the one that shows the trajectory of this story that we have been navigating throughout this series. We are picking up the story down here at the heading that says exile, and that's where we left off last week. If you can see by this chart or remember our stories, Israel has a very roller coaster type story and they're still waiting for the fulfillment of many of the promises that God gave through people like Abraham, David, and the prophets. You can go ahead now and, and turn in your Bibles or scroll through your phones to Matthew chapter 1. Before we read, I want to give us some background on the Matthew account of the gospel. Uh, Matthew was written by a guy who knew Jesus personally. Matthew is also called Levi in some of the other gospel accounts. And he was one of the original 12 disciples who Jesus called to follow him throughout his earthly ministry. Matthew's gospel account is written within about 30 years of when these events are taking place. And I say all of this because I want us to know that Matthew is not just some random dude who never knew Jesus and wrote about his life hundreds of years after the fact. What we are getting in Matthew's gospel account are firsthand takes on the life of Jesus. You know, another interesting fact about Matthew's gospel is in our Bibles, it comes right after the book of Malachi. And in doing so, it ends a 400-year drought of silence in which God does not speak to the nation of Israel. Can you imagine how that might have felt? To go from hearing God through the prophets and then all of a sudden, silence. You know, the nation of Israel is aware of the promises that God has made. He said that all of the loose ends, all of the hardship is going to lead to something, but they've waited 400 years to get to this point. The entire Old Testament that all the good Israelites would be familiar with has pointed to a coming Messiah, a king of fulfillment. They are longing to hear from God and wanting to see his promises fulfilled. And so with that as our backdrop, let's see how this silence is broken. Matthew chapter 1, verse 1 says this. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Let's thank God for speaking to us today through his word. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. 
So we want to unpack all that's included in this opening verse of Matthew 1 because right out of the gates, Matthew is making his point abundantly clear. His gospel serves as the bridge from the Old to the New Testament and he's saying loudly to his Jewish audience, the 400 years of silence that you just went through has brought you to this place right here and Jesus breaks the silence. Everything you have read in your Hebrew scriptures is pointing to this guy right here. He's the one you've been waiting for. And this gospel story is going to highlight that he is the Messiah. You know, Matthew makes some distinct statements about Jesus right here in the opening verse with three declarations that would have caught the attention of his original audience. Matthew says that Jesus is the Messiah, and Messiah means the anointed one. By saying that, what Matthew is saying is that Jesus is the one that all of our Old Testament, all the Hebrew scriptures point to. Jesus is the anointed one, the selected one, the one chosen to fulfill everything that has come before this moment. He goes on to say that Jesus is the son of David and the son of Abraham, who each play really significant roles in the history of Israel and throughout our Old Testament. You know, Matthew then takes the next 15 verses and he lists out a series of names that would all gonna be prominent figures or events that happen in the life of the Old Testament and life of Israel. What Matthew is doing is making it clear to his readers that this is not just his opinion that Jesus is the Messiah. There is evidence in his lineage that brings us to that realization for ourselves. But if you're not overly familiar with the Old Testament lineage, don't feel like you can't get the magnitude of this genealogy. Uh, We're going to see in just a minute that Matthew helps us out actually by highlighting a a number of names for us, making our jobs easier. But before we get there, I want to offer you a Bible reading tip. You know, sometimes we can skip over genealogies because we feel like they're uninteresting or they're confusing or just difficult to navigate. You know, and understanding more the Bible story can certainly help heighten our intrigue to genealogies. But here's a little tip for you. When you're reading a genealogy, if you come across the name that you recognize, it's probably there on purpose. You're supposed to identify that person or that event as significant in the unfolding of this genealogy, and it's actually the author's intent that it would draw to mind all the details that you know about this person. Those names are the ones that might be most helpful in helping you understand this lineage that's being mapped out. We could totally apply this to today's reading. You know, we could focus mostly on the names and events that are probably going to stand out if we read them. And as much as you'd like to hear me struggle over the next 30 minutes to read these names, that's probably not going to be super helpful to our overall aim. And we're going to see, like we said earlier, that Matthew makes our jobs easier by giving us a glimpse into how he has organized these names. If we jump down to verse 17, we see his organizational thoughts here. Thus, there were 14 generations in all from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile to Babylon, and 14 from the exile to the Messiah. So why are each of these names significant? Matthew really selects these four names to sort of be the highlights of his genealogical declaration that Jesus is the Messiah. And like I said before, if you were to read the verses that come before that, these would be the names that probably stand out most to you and that would be the most familiar. That could be because you've tracked with us throughout this series or because you've joined us in reading through our Bible-savvy reading plan over the last four years, but that recognition comes on purpose. You and I see those names as significant, and so would have Matthew's original audience. Remember the timeline that we showed earlier? Abraham, David, and the exile mark incredibly significant times in the history of Israel. 
Each of those references marks a key turning point throughout their history and would have drawn to mind all of the names, all of the details associated with those names. You know, in that way, a genealogy functions a lot like a web page full of hyperlinks. You know, you go to this page and those hyperlinks might only be a word or two like info here. And and info here is only valuable because it actually brings us to something of greater value, right? And in the same way, names included in a genealogy are value because they point to the details behind the names. The hyperlink idea is not isolated to genealogies, however. We see all throughout our Bibles, there are references and hyperlinks to greater details and stories that help us understand the larger biblical narrative that's unfolding. Initially, this could come off as really overwhelming, and I understand that, but I hope that's not the case. Instead, what I want us to do is be drawn into understanding that our God is a majestic God. You know, these references are not meant to complicate our Bibles. Instead, they're meant to be tools that help us understand, help us explore the ways that God reveals himself in his word. To see that he is telling his story about his work throughout history and on into eternity. And so for today, we're going to let Matthew chapter 1 verse 17 be our hyperlink and we're going to go out from there because there's a distinct purpose that Matthew is getting at when he includes these names and it's this. God began a work through these individuals and these events and Jesus is here to draw these stories together to fulfill the work that God has initiated through these names. So let's read verse 17 again and we'll go from there using our hyperlinks idea. Thus there were 14 generations in all from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile to Babylon, and 14 from the exile to the Messiah. The first thing we want to explore here is that Jesus is anointed. Remember, he's the Messiah, the anointed one, and he's anointed to be the blessing. You know, Matthew starts out his genealogy of Jesus with Abraham, and he does so for good reason. Way back in our Old Testament, God makes a promise to Abraham and his wife that he's going to bless them with a huge family. This family is going to be blessed. They're going to be a blessing to the rest of the world, and they're going to have a land to call their own. This story might sound familiar as one we've explored throughout our summer series. If you remember, Abraham and Sarah are childless at the time when God promises them that the nation of Israel will basically be their bloodline. But God intervenes into their experience and blesses them with a child, and the nation of Israel is formed. You know, throughout the Old Testament, Israel was identified as the people of God or the family of God. They were a unique group of people to whom God spoke and revealed himself, and unique to the rest of the people groups around them, they experienced intimacy with God. They were called his children. And it was their responsibility to love God and to bless others, but at times their status took a much more exclusive tone. They saw their status as something to be used for their benefit and neglected to share that blessing with others. There was an sort of insider-outsider mentality that invaded the nation of Israel. But by sending Jesus, God writes this wrong. In Jesus, he's come to extend the blessing to the rest of the world, the blessing that invites the whole world to be God's children, to belong to the family of God. You know, this truth is emphasized not only by including Abraham in his genealogy, but by some of the other names that Matthew includes as well. As we look at some of these opening verses, we see names like Tamar, Rahab, and Uriah's wife, who we might know better as Bathsheba. You know, initially these names might not get a lot of our attention, but they would have been glaring inclusions to Matthew's original audience. 
You know, the overwhelming of historical genealogies in that day would have a patriarchal focus revolving around male figures. In fact, genealogies were used in Israel's history uh, to basically allude to someone's status by connecting them to strong male Jewish figures. You know, Matthew breaks that norm with his genealogy, not only uh, because he includes men like David and Abraham, who really aren't all that shiny, right? They made some decisions that reflect poorly on their life, but he includes Gentile women also, which in that day would have been unheard of. Women were not elevated in that society. They weren't honored. And certainly Gentile women or non-Jewish women would have been seen as second-rate or even worse citizens. What Matthew is doing is he's elevating these women and in doing so, he's letting it be known this blessing is an invitation to everyone. You know, I wonder how many of us might feel like these women probably felt in this day and age. We've taken stock of our life and wondered, has the hand that I've been dealt actually been counted against me? You know, working with students for as long as I have, this is something that comes up a number of different times where students feel like they are outcasts, like they don't belong simply because they don't have what it takes to belong. And what it takes might be, you know, more money or a different clothes or a higher or level, level lower of intelligence, right? Or it could just be that they need a, a greater set of skills in a certain area, but I don't think students are the only ones who struggle with this reality. Maybe you're like me. Maybe you have a spouse, a family, a house, and a job, and you're struggling to keep it all together. In fact, you're overwhelmed with the reality of juggling it all and struggling to belong in any way that you possibly can, but God forbid you show that struggle. You know, belonging as an adult often looks like presenting your life in such a way that it looks like you have it all together. Successful people, the in people, as identified by our society and sometimes by the church, are folks who are clean cut, organized, outgoing. They've mastered the seven habits, they're Enneagram number threes, and they have a strong love of coffee and skinny jeans. Which means anytime I'm not that person, anytime my life feels out of control like the open ended stories of a movie, I can struggle to know where I belong. And when I struggle to know where I belong, I can come up with a hundred reasons as to why I don't belong anywhere at all. Maybe I don't belong in my job, my family, or even in my church. For many of you listening right now, this is the reason you're distant from God. Or possibly the reason you've never begun a relationship with Jesus in the first place. You're worried that he might come to realize that your life is not quite clean enough to belong. You have done, like so many of us have done, bought into the lie that says you don't belong. In a season where we're sheltering in place for as long as we have, this physical isolation can certainly lead us to believing these lies even more and convincing us the weight of I don't belong feels heavier than ever. What Matthew is saying when he points to Jesus as the son of Abraham and he includes these broken people, includes Gentiles and women within his genealogy is that you can hear God proclaim a truth that dispels the lies. The blessing that Jesus has come to fulfill is to invite the whole world, to invite you to hear God say your name as the only one who knows you fully and then proclaim you belong. This is by no merit and no fault of your own, but because of what Jesus has done for you, you belong. As the blessing, Jesus invites you to belong to the family of God. The next thing that we see in our hyperlink verses is this. Jesus is anointed to be the king. 
When Matthew points out David's name at the beginning of the genealogy, he puts it in the genealogy and then wraps it up again in verse 17, uh, we see that his name is there for a reason. If you remember Pastor Courtney's message, she pointed out the significance of David's rule in Israel. And yet, as we saw last week, his kingship failed to hold shalom together. We define shalom as wholeness and peace. When things are the way they are supposed to be, You know, Israel has just come out of hundreds of years of exile. They're currently under Roman occupation. I can't imagine that anybody in their culture would say, this is how it's supposed to be. I don't know that anybody would use the word peace to define the current state of Israel's culture. Maybe we'd say the same thing about our culture now. If I went around to the houses that are tuned in right now and asked, give me one word to define the current state of our world I'm pretty confident that peace would not come up all that often. In fact, I did this very thing this week. I texted out 18 of my friends and asked them for one word, and here is some of what I got. Unknown, challenging, crazy, disheartening, divisive, and traumatic, frustrating, frightening, overwhelming, and powerless. None of these words would be confused with peace. You know, this peace-lacking reality became more apparent the other day when I was out fishing with my three-year-old. We were down by the water, and because he's three, it mostly meant we were throwing rocks in the water and chasing geese. Uh, But as we were there, this woman came up with her nephew. Her nephew is about my son's age, and they began playing almost immediately. So I had two options at that particular point. Uh, I could pretend as if our kids weren't playing and ignore her, or I could be a nice human and strike up a conversation. So we began talking, And our conversation uh, went a direction that most pastors are a little nervous it's going to go. She asked, what do you do for a living? Uh, If you're in a conversation you want to get out of, tell someone you're a pastor and they're pretty much out. Uh, But that is not how Marianne responded. In fact, Marianne grew a big smile on her face and she was ecstatic that we had just met. She was convinced that God had orchestrated this time for us to talk. You know, in fact, she mentioned that she had grown up Catholic Uh, that she doesn't go to church right now, but that she prays a lot and she feels like prayer has gotten her through a number of really difficult conversations. In fact, even right now, she was kind of wrestling through some things. She's trying to figure out where should I live and uh, what job is the right one for me to have? She was navigating some difficult family relationships. She was also navigating some really difficult losses. You know, does that sound familiar? Those situations might not sound familiar, but the word that she gave to me might. She said this, I need peace, and I really want to know my purpose. How many of us are looking at our lives and at the world around us and finally admitting, echoing Marianne's words and saying, I need peace. God, I want to know my purpose. You know, some of us try to manufacture peace and purpose in our lives, right? We've jumped into a job with both feet and we've said, if I can just succeed here, then maybe I will be financially at peace. Others of us have contemplated moving or a major life adjustment and we've wondered, uh, maybe all this angst that I feel is a result of the lifestyle that I've chosen or the location that I live in. And some of us are stuck pointing our fingers at other people and loudly declaring, mostly on social media, that if you all would just get your lives together, then we would be Okay. The current climate of our world might certainly and is certainly increasing our levels of stress and our anxiety. But I think it'd be inaccurate to say that our lack of peace, our unclear purpose, I'm not sure that's all tied to COVID-19. 
If I could be so bold, I'd love to offer up from my own experiences that when I lack peace, when my purpose becomes unclear, it's often a result of serving the wrong king. When my king is my job, there's always another to-do list that looms over my head. And when my king is a clean house, there's always a mess in the next room. You know, when when my, my king is financial flexibility, there's someone out there with more money or one more thing that I want to buy. Or what if king is status or recognition? I mean, there's always somebody out there with more TikTok views or more company awards than I have. Tim Keller, uh, who founded and pastored a church in New York, he's also a best-selling author, he did an interview recently about preaching the gospel to a post-Christian America. He was describing that the motto of our society is, be true to yourself. But he went on to explain, if that's my goal, then I'm not free at all. What I am is I'm enslaved to pursuing an identity that can never fulfill me because there's always someone out there who has more or is better than me or is further along than I am. Being enslaved to form my own purpose or pursue my own peace does not produce shalom. It is certainly not the way things are supposed to be. When I'm enslaved to form my own purpose, I'm not living in light of God's purpose. I'm probably not pursuing his presence or walking in it. My own isolated purpose doesn't contribute to the building up of God's people or participating in his family. And I probably don't see the world as his place. I see it as mine to shape and to form how I see fit. When I'm not serving King Jesus, shalom is not my reality. In Colossians chapter one, the apostle Paul points to Jesus as the supreme king when he says this about Jesus. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things and in him all things hold together. In him all things hold together. In him you are held together. Jesus is the king that brings shalom into our lives, taking the loose ends, the messy stories that we're in of purpose and community, place and intimacy with God and he draws them together, bringing us shalom. When we surrender to Jesus, we're filled with his presence joined to his people and belong to God's family. We're united to his purpose and we're invited to live for his glory as people who reflect his character in the lives that we live. As we live those lives, we do so under his lordship with a recognition that the world is God's place. He is king and I am not. Maybe you're like Marianne. You are overwhelmed with all the disconnected pieces of life. It's creating anxiety. It's creating an unclear sense of purpose. It's causing a lack of peace. And I want to give to you the same words that I told her. Jesus loves you. He has a plan for your life and he is working for your good. And your job, and I don't mean this to sound easy because I know it won't always be the case, but your job is to glorify Jesus in everything that you do to pursue him and his purpose. Glorify him and bless others so that they might come to know King Jesus for themselves. As King, Jesus holds shalom together and he invites us, invites us to have secure peace and purpose as we live out his purpose. Jesus is the blessing and he's the king. And the last thing we wanna explore together is that Jesus is anointed to be the deliverer. 
If you're tracking along with me and using Matthew 17 as our hyperlinks, then you know where we're going next. We're going to the exile right after David. We said earlier, Israel's time in Babylon has been over, right? Many of them have returned home. However, exile is not only a geographical reality for the people of Israel. It's a relational reality for them too. You see, what got Israel into their mega timeout was that they sinned against God. And the only way that this relational exile can be over is if the sin that caused it is dealt with. What's more is that exile from God is not only a reality for the people of Israel. It's a condition of the human heart for you and I today. Our sin, the choices that we make to live our lives our own way have separated us from him. We have broken intimacy that we're supposed to have with God, something that's supposed to come with shalom. You know, scripture describes God as the giver of life. And when we break intimacy, when we separate from him because of our sin, we are dead, spiritually speaking. Many of us will go our entire lives trying to deal with this reality on our own. By either ignoring it or by trying to do enough good that it outweighs the bad. So that when we come to the end of our lives, maybe we've done enough good things that our sin has been dealt with. Or at very least, we've created for ourselves an identity that keeps us from spending eternity separated from God. But here's the issue with that. If my exile is caused by my sin and my deliverance from exile means my sin has to be dealt with, but if my sin also causes my spiritual death, then what power do I have to deal with my sin on my own? None. To be delivered from my exile starts the recognition of my own rebellion against God and admitting that I need to be delivered. Jesus came to be that deliverer and Matthew states it as much in verse 21 when he records what the angel of the Lord said to Joseph. The angel says this, she will give birth to a son and you are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. The angel of the Lord is telling Matthew, this baby growing inside Mary, his name is Jesus and he's going to be the one who delivers God's people from their exile. He's going to be the one who delivers the family of God. Through Jesus, God is going to deal with the sins of the world and create a way for the world to receive this blessing of shalom. This statement is a foreshadowing of the work that Jesus came to accomplish while here on earth. He lived perfectly and yet died on the cross and his death was the payment for my sins and for your sins, for the sins of the world. The Bible tells us that the punishment for sin is death. Jesus took the death that you and that I deserve. He dealt with my sin, dealt with your sin so that we could be drawn near to God, the giver of life. That separation, the exile that sin has caused is over when we acknowledge and surrender to Jesus as savior and as king. But the story doesn't end with Jesus' death. He was raised from the dead and sits at the right hand of God, continually working to restore shalom on this earth. As king, Jesus is working out his rule and he's invited you and me to join him in the mission of spreading shalom to the world, reconciling the world, drawing the world to himself. Are you tired of living a life that feels like a series of disconnected stories? Are you weary of feeling exiled, outcast, peaceless? Are you tired of scratching and clawing, trying to convince yourself and the rest of the world that you have your purpose figured out? 
The Bible records an invitation that God gives to us when he says, come to me all who are weary and I will give you rest. The invitation of the gospel is not an invitation to perform your way to God. It's an invitation to surrender and to accept the love of Jesus that's expressed through the, love, through the work that Jesus did on your behalf. He died in your place and in doing so unites you to God and then he raises from the dead to rule and restore, bringing shalom to his world. Matthew wants his readers to know Jesus is the Messiah. He has come to fulfill the promises that God has made. He has come to bring shalom. Do you want shalom? Do you want to belong? Do you want to have peace and purpose? Do you want to be delivered from this exile and be brought near to the God who formed you and loves you and wants you? Then let me join with Matthew in declaring, it's Jesus. He is the one you've been waiting for. In just a minute, we're gonna pray together. And what we're gonna do is we're gonna, we're gonna pray, we're gonna pray three specific words. We're gonna pray sorry, thank you, and please. And if you want to pray and surrender your life to Jesus as your savior and your king, then I would love for you to pray this along with me. You can pray this aloud wherever it is you're at now, or you can pray it silently in your mind and in your heart. I'd love for you to bow your head and pray with me. And after I say amen, I've got a couple of encouragements for you. God, I'm sorry for my sin, for my rebellion. God, that I've chosen to go my own way and in doing so, I have exiled myself from you. God, I'm sorry. But I thank you for Jesus, your son, my savior, who came to this earth and took the penalty for my sin when he died in my place on the cross. Through Jesus' death and his resurrection, my exile is over and I can be brought near to you, God. And please, Jesus, as the resurrected king, would you be the king in my life? I'm done trying to pursue my own purpose or manufacture my own peace. I want your perfect peace. I want to pursue your purpose. Lead me and use me, God, to spread shalom to your world. Amen.